Happy Hanukkah and welcome to the When Did You Know podcast for my special bumper Hanukkah edition. On this very special episode, I'm delighted to be joined by H. Allen Scott, also known as Sadie Pines, zooming in direct from Los Angeles. H. Allen is a writer, comedian and cancer survivor based in the US, known for his work on The Jimmy Kimmel Show, Ellen and MTV, as well as writing for Vice, Fusion and Out Magazine. He is also the star and subject of the multi-award-winning documentary Latter Day Jew, where he talks about his conversion to Judaism, having been raised Mormon. H. Allen's alter ego is Sadie Pines, the only drag queen fully inspired by the Golden Girls, available for bookings when not in quarantine. I came across H. Allen's work as co-host of the Out on the Lanai, the Golden Girls podcast and the You're Making It Worse podcast. Both are available on all major podcast platforms. I loved having the opportunity to speak to H. Allen, so enjoy the episode. And before we begin, Hag Sameach and Happy Hanukkah. I want to say a special thank you to H. Allen and Kerry Doherty for their Golden Girls podcast at the beginning of the pandemic. Whilst my partner was working long hours as a nurse, their podcast truly helped me through some really stressful, emotional and lonely times. And so I'm very grateful to have found them. And so thank you and welcome, H. Allen Scott. Thank you. Uh, I love hearing that. It's so funny. The Golden Girls podcast was purely done out. It wasn't, it was one of the few things in my like career that it was not career driven. Do you know what I mean? There was no business. There was no, you know, coordination of like, how is this going to be part of my brand or whatever? It literally was just pure joy coming into it. And it it maintained that to this day, it still maintains that even though we're not doing episodes weekly, because we did all the episodes, um, we like covered every episode. It's still, we still do these episodes. And I love that there's such an emotional connection that people have to it, you know, and it, it, I mean, I have an emotional connection to it. And I'm so glad that reads to people, especially people going through like difficult times, which is uh, something that I responded to when I was going through chemo and like listening to things. And so you, you get invested into things. And, and I've gotten so many messages of people who just randomly will get invested in the golden girls podcast in an emotional way. And it makes me so, so happy. And I'm like, how did I do that? I didn't even think I was doing that. (laughs) I think, and that's, and that's why I originally messaged you actually. And it was kind of, while I hadn't even thought, well, I thought a little bit about this podcast, but didn't know what to do. And, um, and, it was, and I'm not really, you know, a soppy, emotional person. So, um, and I don't really... Re- like most British people? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> We hide our emotions. We bury them deep, as everyone should. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, I, and it's one of the few times that I've kind of written to someone and be like, you know what, this genuinely did make a difference in it. Um, because I'm so glad. Part of, you know, I love the Golden Girls, and I'm still only on, like, season three or four of Out on the Lanai, so... I still got a long way to go, mm-hmm. but, um, mm-hmm. and especially because you've added a new episode recently, that really threw me off. So, like, okay. yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, and it, it really, I think my love of the Golden Girls helped, but equally, you just sounded like you were having fun. And at the time, you know, we were on lockdown. My partner was working till very late. I was very worried. It just stopped mm-hmm. me feeling a little bit lonely, you know, because I couldn't see friends. Yeah, go out to work. So, so yeah, genuinely, thank you. It really, really. Of course. And that's what I think that's what I think a lot of people and I'm so glad you say that because I think, you know, even people listening to this podcast, like, there's a, 
one of the things that I learned, I think my biggest lesson from chemo was the ability to just be honest and not like bullshit. Can I curse? Okay. (laughs) Okay. And to not bullshit sort of your way through things. And, and I think by being not vulnerable, because I hate that word, but like just being honest about sort of what you're feeling helps people in a way that you're honest within within the realm of how you want to be open with public people in the public sphere. But then also that that when you're honest, people relate to that and they maybe don't, they're still going to feel lonely or whatever they're feeling, but at least they're not alone in that feeling. And that's a really, really good, healthy thing that I think we need more of. Yeah, I think that's the, um, yeah, being honest and open about feeling lonely. There's... Um, Mm-hmm. It's amazing thing every Christmas that we have a comedian, um, Sarah Millican in the UK, mm-hmm. um, who mm-hmm. I adore. Um, Same. Unfortunately, she's not LGBT, so I can't try and get to come on this podcast. But um, she every <laughs> Christmas day does um, like a, a Twitter tweet along with people. I can't remember mm-hmm. what she calls it, um, where people can kind of just tweet about how their day's going and just be really honest. Yeah. How lonely a day like Christmas Day can be when everyone's supposed to be with their families and actually there are plenty of people who are not with families they're having to work or mm-hmm. with family and actually it's not a safe space for them it's not a happy space for them and, um, and yeah. it's what I've learned I've kind of taken part in the last few years and just talking to people and the yeah when we're just honest about loneliness you automatically well also I will say I mean I've been in the UK now twice during the holidays <laughs> during Christmas time and you know, I, I'm, I'm a converted Jew. I don't really care about Christmas. I never really cared about Christmas before. I mean, I, I like, I like the, the pageantry because, you know, drag queen, of course, I'm going to love the pageantry of something, but I don't care about like the actual meaning of the holiday. Um, and, and so, but what I will say is in the UK, no other country in the world, and I blame Queen Victoria for this, no other country in the world does Christmas like the UK. It is insane. Maybe Germany, but Germany, at least it's like quaint and they're like so like PC that they're just like, well, we're going to make it accepting for everyone. Not in the UK. The UK is like, no, bitch, you will celebrate Christmas. You will go to four different office Christmas parties. And if you don't celebrate Christmas or you don't like Christmas, you're going to feel so lonely. I think people in the UK are more lonely in, in, during Christmas because UK does Christmas so insanely. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think um, it's definitely an issue for LGBT, you know, <laughs> take it back to the theme of the podcast, um, <laughs> for LGBT people. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I even though I'm converted to I also kind of love the festive season, but, um, of course but I, it's the pageantry. We're homosexuals. Exactly. Anyway. Right. So <laughs> on to the question. So each episode I'm asking the same three questions and we'll take it from there. So first off, how do you identify? Well, I mean, in a literal sense, if I'm talking about myself, I, you know, would say gay or queer. That's usually how I sort of go back and forth, but I, I mainly identify as like Sadie Pines. I mean, I mean, that's such a weird thing, but it's true. Like, I know it's not a gendered thing, but it's, it's, uh, it's my essence, like my, my, my work, my performance, my, what I like putting out into the world, the vibe of what I put out into the world. That is all very Sadie Pines. So I identify as Sadie Pines. Perfect. Thank you, Sadie. Why age did you come out as H. Allen? Because I've got questions about Sadie later. So what age did H. Allen come out? <laughs> Well, um, and it's so funny because H. Allen is actually not my real name. 
uh, it's, 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 uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell that story too. Um, I, well, I never really came out. That's the weird thing. I, I never really had to, because I was always very, I, I grew up, even though I was raised Mormon, I grew up in a family that was, my mom was so chill and like open. And like, I mean, I joke about this in the movie Latter-day Jew, but like that, when I was growing up, my mom would like say to me and my brothers, like when you kids grow up and have children and then she would turn to me and go or adopt. So there was always this caveat for me being like, not within that lane that everyone else seemed to be on. And it was okay for me to be in that lane. And she embraced me, you know, obsessing over the Golden Girls and Oprah Winfrey and like Bette Midler and like these people, she she allowed that, Rosie O'Donnell, she allowed that to happen. Um, and I think I just kind of grew into it. And it was only in like middle school, high school that I realized I wasn't necessarily in the same lane as everybody else. And, uh, but I kind of loved that I wasn't because everyone else was really dumb and stupid and very basic, very, very basic. And I kind of was, I mean, I was an arrogant little piece of shit. I don't think anything's changed really. Um, but I just knew that like I was different in a better way. So I just kind of embraced it <laughs> and let it happen. And and I guess it was kind of lonely at times, I suppose, but I didn't really feel lonely because I had TV. And so like I would go home and watch TV and movies and read books and stuff. And it was there was it wasn't really that lonely. And I had a core group of friends that that um you know became my sort of rock and still are um to this day. But uh it's yeah, so I never really had to come out. Oh, and the, the why my name. Um, so I, my 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 real name is uh, I was born my Christian name, if you will, is Scott Allen Honinger. And when I started performing, nobody could pronounce my last name because it's a German weird last name. It's not even normal in Germany. I mean, every time I've gone to Germany, people see my last name and they know how to pronounce it, but they're just like where did this come from? Because Germans have like very basic names. They're very sort of, I guess, weird in that way that they're, they're very literal names. Whereas my name was never that easy. And so um, people would always mispronounce it in really un inappropriate and sometimes offensive ways because of the way it's spelled. And so I quickly learned I needed to change that. So I changed it to H Allen. I just flipped it. I literally just flipped it. And I just put H period Allen Scott and it, worked and now mo everybody in my life with the exception of my family knows me as H. Allen or Sadie. And it's quite it's quite a good brand. It really sets you apart. <laughs> I mean it works. I mean I never really intended that. I honestly just didn't want to remember something that I like <laughs> I couldn't remember. And I liked the way it looked in my signature. You know what I mean? So I was just like, okay, that works for me. I can work with this. Fair enough. So finally the point of the podcast, when did you know? Um, well, that's a, that's a good question. I, um, when did I know? I've thought about that a lot. When you emailed me the thing, I was like, when did I know? And I was really, really struggling to try to figure out when I knew. And I think it was, I was, I was at like this lake resort thing with my family, with my dad, my parents separated and I was with my dad and my grandparents and they were all assholes. And, um, and so I would always go off and like do my own thing because my family was, or my dad and my grandparents were just such assholes. And I, um, so I was watching this, like, like this, this 
guy, this like guy at this resort, this very flamboyant guy who was like doing things at this lake resort thing in the middle of Missouri. And, um, and I just sort of like, was like, I, I, it sort of gave me a glimpse into my future. You know what I mean? I looked at him and I was like, Oh, okay, maybe. But then that really solidified when I, I was, I remember as it was 96, I think it was the summer of 1996 and the birdcage had just come out and my family would always go to the movies every sort of Friday night. And, um, and I was, my mom wanted to go see the birdcage and I was like, no, I do not want to go see the birdcage with my family. I know this is going to be a gay movie and I don't know if that's me or not, but like, I know that's uncomfortable for me to go. And I remember watching the movie being like, okay, I think this might be my world. And then I, at the end of the movie, when we were going home, my mom was like raving about how great the movie was and how funny the movie was and how perfect everyone in the movie was. And it, it sort of just made me feel comfortable in all of that and sort of understanding maybe where my future was going and who I was at that moment. And then having that family support, it just all sort of met in that car ride home in that extended roof van that we had back then that was a ridiculous car. And it, it just sort of, it just sort of became peaceful then. So I kind of attribute to me knowing then at that moment. And I'm trying, I know that you have talked about um, Ellen and what well, I, I was almost late to this because I was watching the clip on your website about um, mm. when you're on the Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres show. She was very her. nice to me. And let me just say that everyone's hating on Ellen and I get it. I understand it, but she was very nice to me. I have so many questions about that, but I'm not going to put them in because I have a lot of questions. Um, but, yeah, so you were talking about kind of how that helped you kind of come out and your mum's reaction to it of not mm-hmm. directly saying it, but, you know, kind of saying that she was very brave. And um, I guess I'm trying to work out, was that before or after Birdcage? So it's so interesting. So the years... And that's what's so interesting to me as someone who just loves television and media and culture in general. But, like... Those mid 90 years, I think, are so interesting for anyone who was queer and who was like in my age group, you know, in that time. Um, because in 1995, you had my so called life, which had Ricky, which was like a, I don't know if I'm sure you guys had it in the UK, um, but it only lasted for a season. And it was a really important show here in the, in the US because it was about sort of teen life and teen life in the mid 90s and all of that. And even though I was like 12, I think, when it came on, I, I loved it. And there was this character on the show played by Wilson Cruz called Ricky. And he was so gay and it was like so open and it was so a part of that conversation and that friend group and everything. And that was my first real sort of popular introduction to like what gay was, but I didn't really relate to it so much because he was a bit older than me. Um, And then the next year literally was the birdcage. And then the year after that was Ellen. And then the year after that was Matthew Shepard. And then the year after that was Boys Don't Cry. So it was sort of this like boom, 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 boom. And then of course, when I'm in college, there's the whole ban on gay marriage in in the US and Bush putting through the constitutional amendment and all of that. So that literally that 10 year window of those pivotal years from adolescence to like young adulthood was filled with representations, both good and really, really bad of a gay identity. And that's sort of where I took shape. And so when was it that you kind of talked to your family about who you were? Did it, was there ever really a conversation or? There wasn't really because there wasn't really because I would just come home with friends and people. It was just so, it was just so accepted. 
you know what I mean? That I never, the, the, the room for the conversation never, it was actually more of a conversation when I decided to convert to Judaism than it was ever with my sexuality and coming out as a Jew was a lot harder. And it was, um, they're never, I cannot recall. And I am pretty good at remembering these things. I cannot recall one conversation we had where I had to have that conversation with my family. It was just sort of, you know, even with any boyfriend I ever had, it was just sort of like, Oh, I'm seeing this guy. And it was never, they're never, it was never prefaced by, Oh, by the way, you know what I mean? Amazing. And I guess quite unique. I've not, yeah. I'm sure it is. I mean, I know it is. I know it is. I have some friends that are all in a, in a similar situation, but I'm I'm completely aware of how unique and singular my growing up at that time was and my situation was. And I'm super, super, super grateful for it because I, 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 I a couple years, I think I maybe messaged you in, on Twitter about this when you messaged me about this, but years ago when um, It Gets Better came out, you know, that whole campaign of it gets better. Uh, I got booked to do a show on it gets better. And they just assumed that I had this like tragic story. And I don't, I don't have any tragic story. I have lots of other tragic stories that have nothing to do with my sexuality. But, um, and I remember after the show, they were super disappointed because I didn't have like a sad story. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> it was okay like, for me. To be fair, all the episodes are recorded. Like no one has really had a tragic coming out story. And that's really nice because often oh, kind of the, yeah. uh, whatever you see in the media, I'm speaking from British media, but I assume it's the same in the US, was whenever there was gay characters on TV, it was always the drama and the trauma of coming out, which can be really traumatic. I'm, you know, Definitely. That's the only ever version of coming out that, you, that we saw. So, mm-hmm. It's quite refreshing doing this podcast and actually finding that well, not everyone did have tragic stories at all, and that's quite yeah. Some yeah, it was more complicated than others, but mm-hmm. generally, there's been no awful tragedy, which is great. <laughs> which is <laughs> so great. Which is, I mean, I have some friends that have some have had some really hard coming out, so I could, I could, I could book you some guests if you want <laughs> the tragedy. <laughs> um, so. If you don't mind, I'm kind of interested. So you lived with your mom. Your parents were separated. Yeah, so I lived with my dad for um, until I was 10, 11. And then I moved in with my mom. My dad um, got divorced from my stepmom at that time. And he just decided to go off and do his own thing. I don't have much of a relationship with my dad today. Uh, and so he kind of left. And then I moved in with my mom when I was 11. And that's who I spent those years with. And so have you ever had to have a conversation with your dad about your sexuality? If you don't have much of a relationship? No. No, I never really have. I mean, my dad is a bit of a, um, a shyster <laughs> and he, uh, he, he likes to profit off of stuff more than take an investment in his children's life. Um, and so I, yeah, I don't have much relationship with him, but if it ever became financially um, profitable for him to talk about me coming out to him, he'll find a way to do that. Ooh, that was shade. I hope he's listening. <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah <laughs> i'm very direct on my father i wish him well he lives in germany he's fine he's happy i think he lives in germany now that's what i last heard i don't know it's funny i do have two listeners in germany so who knows um, oh well hello to both of you or should i say hello <laughs> so i am on as i was saying at the beginning i'm on i think i'm at the end of season three i'm about to go into season four of al on the lanai or Garvin Does podcast and i've noticed from 
the early episodes, how much you talk about wishing to wear Dorothy's clothes, to look like Dorothy. And so then when I finally Googled you and discovered Sadie Pines, I was like, oh, so I'm really interested basically in what made her come out of the closet. So I feel like I'm listening on the journey, like quite delayed the journey that you went on, kind of realising that you could do that. I don't know if that's fair. So. No, it is. It's totally fair to say. There was, um, so, I mean, that trajectory, and I'm glad you asked this question because it doesn't get asked a lot. Um, I, so I had, I did stand up in New York for a long, long, long time. And it was, I did okay. And, you know, got me work and I got lots of stuff and moved to LA and like all of the things, you know? Um, but I never, I was all, when I was a kid, I always just said, I want to make money just being me. Like, I just, that's the, I don't know how to, I'm going to figure out how to do that. I just want to figure out how to make money doing that. And so I, I, comedy was my natural place because I could communicate and people could relate to me. And it was like, uh, it was a nice symbiotic relationship. And so I just kind of dived into that world, but I never, I always said from the very beginning, I'm not going to be one of those, like, you know, get on late night TV comics, like a touring, that's not me. That's not who I am. And I, I was actually more invested in, in UK comedy because it tends to be more personality based and it tends to be more story driven and it tends to be more, um, there are characters that people present on television that allow, you know, you, you have like, there's just, there's just a lot of opportunities to sort of like exist within your own personality. And that doesn't really exist here in the U S I mean, it's very stand-up driven. It does in some circles, but like the comedy world is based on stand-up comics. You tour, you go to clubs, you get on late night TV, you either get a TV show or you work in a TV room. That's all you do. And, uh, and that's great. So I did that for a long time. And, and then when I got sick and I was in chemo, I kind of just got sick of doing what I thought I should be doing. And it just sort of really bothered me that I was kind of, um, I was doing cool things and I had cool friends and I had a cool life and I still do. Um, but I, it wasn't, it wasn't really speaking creatively to me in the way that I wanted it to, I wanted my life to be. And, those years after sort of when we started the golden girls podcast until just a couple of years ago, I was kind of trying to figure out my place in all of this. You know what I mean? I didn't really, I didn't feel the need to get up and do stand up all the time. And I wanted to write more and I wanted to be perform more, but in my own kind of weird way. And, and I didn't really find a place that it was okay for me to do that. And frankly, I just kind of got sick of being me. And, um, and then through a marriage of both a creative sort of desperation and working with my boyfriend who works in fashion, um, we kind of came up with this sort of creative path that has become very much the only thing I like doing, which is Sadie and that, and the podcast and sort of finding that voice within that world and that there was a different way of performing and being creative that wasn't, really ever aware to me, you know what I mean? I thought you had to do it in one way. There was only one type of drag queen and that's how it had to be done. And um, and then doing the podcast and being friends with like, you know, Alaska and other great drag queens, it, it sort of showed me that I could go in a more creative professional way and do it in my own way and put on shows in my own way as Sadie and allow for a bit of privacy on my own end, but also like, have a vessel where I could literally do whatever I wanted. And, uh, and that's sort of where it came from. And I'm so, I'm so grateful that she, 
reared her beautiful face in my life. And, um, and that, yeah. And that I have this opportunity to sort of do this. I'm kind of late to the game, but I feel, I feel like in a weird way, I feel like I, even though there is a baby element to it, I feel very good. I feel a few years in more advanced than the, the, the starter years, if you will. I guess because you have that kind of that stage presence, that performing yeah. background, I guess would, would help ground you there. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one thing I don't worry about is, is, I mean, you put me in front of people, I'm not going to be short of words and things to do and say. So like, I never, I can, I can hold my own there. <laughs> was it a surprise to anyone when kind of Sadie appeared? Yes, it was. Um, it was a surprise to, I think, most of my comedy people, my comedy peers, just because they don't get it. They don't get the, the. I think they think it's a bad career move in a lot of ways. Um, but I, I never really cared about being sort of mainstream <laughs> and like having, I mean, I always liked that my comedy was able to like, people were relate to things that I did of all different types of people were able to relate. And I think that's the same with drag, but like, I don't care about needing to be anything other than to what my queer community wants and likes. And I, I just don't care. I just, I want to do what I want to do. And if it's a small market that is going to enjoy that thing, well, then that's cool with me. I mean, I'm still doing it. And, uh, but there definitely were like some comedy peers and some professional peers, you know, people who saw the documentary and it just, there was nothing of it in the documentary because it was kind of in that middle area. And it was just sort of like, listen, I'm a queer artist. Things ebb and flow and change all of the time. And I'm going to be open for that. And I'm going to allow people to come on the ride with me while I do it. So yeah, but there definitely were. You've talked about um, your love of TV and pop culture and movies. It's what, you know, read a few of your articles that can't, I'm not going to lie and pretend I've read them all, um, that often talks about a lot of pop culture figures. Mm-hmm. And you're put, I was really interested in, I think it's in like the trailer of You're Making It Worse, where you talk about the three guys that you kind of felt that you never fit in, you never fitted in with the gay scene. Mm-hmm. What? How did the gay scene feel to you? Like what made it such a kind of a place that you didn't fit in? With? Yeah, I mean... In comedy specifically, I never felt like I fit in with that scene. Um, there was, there's, and that's where the three of us, Elliot and Brent and I kind of um, formed our friendship is that, you know, here we were three out gay comics comedians working in New York. And, um, you know, there's a lot of gay shows. There's a lot of gay bar shows, you know, and we get booked because you're gay, you get booked in the gay bar shows. And, we quickly started to learn that Brent never really did very well with gay rooms and in gay spaces. I did okay. I was okay, but I never felt like, I never felt connected necessarily with my material to what was going on. And Elliot also felt very similar to Brent. And so we all kind of bonded over this idea that like, well, we're just going to exist as gay people within whatever room we're in. We're not going to only be in this one room. And I very much feel like that now, even though I, I'm, I, I love performing for queer spaces. I'm just sort of like, I don't care what the space is. I'm going to exist in it as myself. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, but the three of us really sort of came into our own in those spaces. And I think it was rooted in this sort of disconnect with um, this idea of sort of like othering yourself. You know what I mean? Like we never really, 
And I think that's natural within sort of marginalized communities that you want to other yourself so that you have your own group of people that you can protect yourselves with. And I get that. I totally get the impulse to do it. But I think because of my upbringing, and all three of us have sort of similar upbringings and that it was always kind of okay for us to be who we were um, or are, uh, that we we just kind of, we never felt the need to sort of be separate as a security mechanism. And so I think that was our real, that was the sort of disconnect that we had in those early days. And now I think it's evolved and I think the community is evolving in a lot of ways to be very open and accepting of all different types of gay people and not just people who wanna go to a certain type of place or do a certain type of thing or have a certain type of joke or, you know what I mean? Like it's it's allowed, um, a bit of self-expression from lots of different types of gay people, which I love. There was something in the earlier in the earlier episodes of um, making it worse, where I think you talked about TV and kind of I think you all talked about pop culture and, and TV and yeah. movies. What I find really strange um, is how important television is. I guess sometimes it's part of my realizing who I am story um, of like seeing something on TV, and yet we are still not seeing representations. I've talked about it about tragic coming out stories. We're still not seeing representations of the full spectrum of mm-hmm. LGBT life. Um, so um, that's sort of links to what I'm going to say next. Well, no, I mean, I think, I think you're so right. I, and I talk about this a lot. I mean, my boyfriend and I talk about this a lot, how, you know, a lot of times, and I don't know, it's such a complicated thing because it's, on one hand, I love that there's representation out there on television for LGBTQ people and for people of color and, you know, more for women and more, like, I love that there's, there's a reckoning that's happening. Um, But I often think, and I think this sort of speaks back to what I was saying about being othered. uh, We sometimes get in with an, with, with an, a lane where it's like, it can only be queer stories or this queer person can only have a queer identity and and the story can only be queer or can only be black or can only be woman. And it's like, of every person in my life, they are not only the one thing that society seems to focus on about them. You know what I mean? Like they are lots of different things. And like, you know, I would love for the lead of Pose to have like tax problems. You know what I mean? Like that would be relatable to me because it's like, sure, she's this beautiful, beautiful woman who is in ball culture. And, you know, there's there's a there's the trans identity and her whole story. And that's a beautiful story. And I think that is so relevant and so needed. But I also want that character to exist on like, you know, modern family, not necessarily as a trans woman, maybe just exist as a trans woman. But her main issue is that she has like tact problems. You know what I mean? Like. I just want the characters to be more nuanced so that there's more of a relatability so that the, the, the straight cisgendered white person in the middle of America or in the middle of the UK in Plymouth, maybe um, that's not the middle, but still uh, could look at that character and go, Oh yeah. Well, I have tax problems too. Like I get this character. Like I know this person and it's, and there's the relatability there that the person then just happens to be trans and it's not denying that she's trans. It's not denying her race or it's not denying her gender. It's not, it's not denying any of those things. It's just, there's more of a nuanced approach to these characters. And I hope we're getting there. I think we are. I think we need these barrier breakers right now who are doing shows like this to 
to get to the place of normalcy so that we can be just regular characters and exist within lots of different worlds. It's a bit, I think it's, it's what Shit's Creek probably did really well in like the, they, that uh, David and Patrick just have mm-hmm. to get, they're not, yeah. it wasn't really a plot point and, um, and it's like in the UK, soap operas are still a massive thing. Like they're on every night of the week and they're a huge deal. Which I um, love. I hate to admit it, but I love that about the UK. Like uh, we love the soap operas. I say we actually, I've not watched a soap opera in quite a few years, um, <laughs> which I'm not really proud of because I'm just, I'm so out of many national conversations. But anyway, um, and in the same with things like The Great British Bake Off and loads of TV where we have got to a point where more and more characters they just happen to be LGBT. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I was growing up, characters are LGBT. I mean, I remember the first um, time that two men kissed on Coronation Street, one of our beloved soap operas. Um, it was front page news. It was discussed oh. in Parliament. It was... it was Discussed so- in Parliament? <laughs> it really was. Um, oh. The UK and soap operas, it was crazy. Um, it was such a big deal. Whereas now it's starting to become... Oh, I love that you. about the Great British Bake Off, I will say. It is very much just sort of like, like whatever their identity is, be it gay, be it, you know, religious background, be it whatever, it's 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 acknowledged, it is open, it is there. But the most important thing is like cracker week. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like it doesn't it doesn't matter whatever the backstory is, if your cake doesn't stand up against this guy's cake, that's it. I love that. I love that. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of interesting that, you know, big shows like um, The X Factor used to be a massive thing over here and it's, it wasn't, it's not been on for two years, I think now. It's just not a big deal. And I think because they were using people and their their tragic stories, and it was there was always LGBT people, and their tra- the tragic the tragedy of being LGBT was always discussed. People got really bored of it, whereas shows yeah. where it's a big deal and it just is have been so much more successful and are mm-hmm. just more people to watch. But I love that. anyway, kind of staying on that whole thing of TV, and then this is probably a question that you got asked quite a lot, but. And it's something that's really difficult because I've tried to answer it for myself, but why the Golden House? Why was that such a big thing for you? And it, for me, it's something that I've struggled to answer personally, but as you've had a whole podcast dedicated to yeah. it, I thought you might be a bit more, you might be able to give a better answer than I would. Yeah. I mean, I think it all boils down to chosen family. That's the Golden Girls. I mean, and that, and I think why the Golden Girls for queer people and why such a queer response to the Golden Girls. But I think for anybody too, I mean, everyone has that feeling of not belonging and not, not feeling like they fit within certain circles or certain things or whatever. And the Golden Girls personify the idea of different people coming together and building a family. And that is such a heartwarming, lovely, relatable thing for people to get. And and I also think that each one of the girls, everyone says like, what kind of golden girl are you? I'm all of them and we all are. I mean, each golden girl represents part of our personalities that 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 we have within, a, within us that sometimes we want to see shown in different ways. And, you know, we're all just as sexual as Blanche. We're all just as sort of, 
annoyed as, a, as Dorothy. We're all sometimes dumb and naive like Rose. And sometimes we're just like angry, like Sophia half the time. And it's okay. And we're all of those things. And they're all so relatable. So for me, why the Golden Girls is I think they're one of the few examples on television of a chosen family coming together and just sort of existing in a really funny, relatable way. And you can show different, like, you know, there, there are other shows that sort of follow the similar format, like Sex and the City or Living Single, or, um, you know, some even say Entourage has a Golden Girls element to it. Uh, but, but it doesn't quite add up because each of those characters have their own sort of things going on and they aren't necessarily rooted in, they aren't invested in the future of the others. Whereas on the Golden Girls, each one is invested and benefiting from the future of the other also succeeding. And, and you don't see that on Sex and the City. Like, sure, they're all friends, but Carrie doesn't need any of them to, to succeed. You know, whereas on the Golden Girls, Dorothy can't succeed without the three of them. And I think yeah. that's really, um, that's why they're so relatable. Away from kind of LGBT life, you've talked about Latter-day Jew. When did you know you were Jewish? Early on. Um, I didn't have a word for it, but I knew early on. Uh, I was, uh, when I was a kid, so Mormons get baptized later in life. They, boys get baptized at eight. And I think, I don't know if this is still the case, but girls used, when I was a kid, girls got baptized a few years later. Um, and like a lot of religions, it's very gendered, which I hate. Uh, but, um, so I was a little bit late in that because I was living with my father at the time, but my father agreed to raise us as basically Mormon but like poor Mormons, like we were, I mean, we're not, so like you can't be that conservative if you're, if you're a poor Mormon, because it costs a lot to be a good Mormon. Um, but uh, my, so I got baptized a little bit late and during the whole baptism process, I kept having these questions. I was, a, I didn't quite get the obsession with like heaven and like, like us dying and shit. Like I didn't get that. Like that was very foreign to me. Um, it felt like you were living, like you were going to win the lottery someday, but like, I want to win the lottery now. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and so it didn't make sense to me. And I had all these questions and they kept delaying my baptism because I had all these questions, which I joke was the first sign I was a Jew. Um, but I mean, I, I say like that the first and last day that I was Mormon is also the first day that I was basically kind of a Jew uh, because on my baptism day, I was going through the process. It's also maybe kind of the first time I was like, Ooh, gay. Um, but I was going through the baptism process and you wear this white sort of robe thing, you know, and you can't wear anything on underneath it. And I'm like a few years older than most boys getting baptized. So I'm at the like height of puberty now. And I'm, and the only reason why I even kind of gave up and gave in was sure. My mom wanted me to like finally be baptized, but also the, the missionary who was like dealing with my baptism was like so attractive. And so I was like, this is perfect for me. Like, I'll just get baptized and I'll be a great gay Mormon. And um, and I remember being in the bath. It's like, they put you in like a body of water. It's a jacuzzi. And you're like in front of like your entire like family and friends or whatever. And they dip you in this water. And the only thing that I'm thinking about as they're hold as this beautiful man is there's an elder in front of me who's like the priest or whatever of the of the church. Um, saying like lots of prayers or whatever. He was okay. But the guy holding me was like cream of the crop, like Thor levels. And he was 
like dipping me into the water and all I'm thinking is that the top of my head is right by his like nasty bits, if you will. And so I'm actively thinking of genitalia during my baptism, which feels like the last thing you should probably be thinking of during a baptism. And it was then that I kind of realized like, oh, this is probably not for me. And, um, and then I'm presented to my family in this white see-through clingy robe with like all of my early manhood showing. It was, it was, it was a traumatizing day. Um, and so after that, I kind of stopped being Mormon. And I, I mean, I didn't really actively stop. I just didn't really care. You know what I mean? I just kind of got away from it. And I was existing in this Mormon world with my family and stuff who were all, again, poor Mormons, but like still Mormons. Um, and then in college, I, I remember I was like performing a lot and I was doing a lot of things and I had a way of performing. I was talking a lot like Dorothy when I was performing. That's how I used to deliver jokes. And my college um, counselor asked if I was going home for the high holy days, which I had no idea what that meant. And, and then it was because of the way I talked and communicated and performed um, and just the way I existed. And then I did some reading and I kind of realized then that like, oh, all of those questions I had when I was a kid were going in this direction. Uh, but I just didn't do anything about it because I was in my 20s and I was, you know, living. And then it was after chemo that I decided to convert. Wow. It's because um, I'm converting. I mean, <laughs> and it's, Mazel tov. Uh, thank you. Um, it's uh I wanted to ask that question, I guess, because I find it really fascinating because I don't meet that many people who are converting, especially... There's not a lot of us. No, especially down here. You know, we have a really small Jewish community, uh, very the oldish, oldest synagogue in the English-speaking world, though, in Plymouth. Mm-hmm. There's only about five people who go, but still. Um, <laughs> but I never get to kind of hear what other people's experiences are. So yeah, UK Jews are really interesting to me. I've always, I mean, I, I don't know much of the world of that part of the Jewish world. Um, I actually was invited to go to something before the world fell apart. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's such a, the UK Jews are such a fascinating because there is this level of, there is a very deep level of anti-Semitism within the United Kingdom and and it's existed for years and years and it's, it's socially accepted, I think, for years and years. The same, similar to how it's existed in the US, but I think in the UK there's, there's a weird, weird relationship with Jews and and the UK, probably because of the white papers. I would probably go back to Israel and that whole dealing with Israel and everything that happened with that. I have a feeling that's probably where the frustration may live. I don't know, but I love my UK Jews. I know many of them. I think, yeah, I think a lot of it does go back to that because, you know, this is why the country's a mess. Um, It's not a political podcast, but still, country's a mess and we're leaving the EU, even though most young people don't want it. And I think a lot of that goes back to that loss of empire, that there's a lot of older people who want that Great Britain, we're an empire thing, and we're not. We're a really tiny, yeah. not that important island. And I think that does go back to the Israel thing, because while well, it was the British mandate of Palestine, and, the, yeah. and I, I think a lot of it goes back to that. Well, and you can still be big, and like you can still be pounding your chest and be big and bad and everything, while at the same time, like realizing that you're part of like a global conversation. Like it's okay. We're dealing with that here in the United States as well. It's, it's a part of this identity of why. And I think, and I think us, you know, younger people are having the conversations of, well, you know, it's okay to like be really fierce and stuff, but also realize that you're part of a community that like what's good for you should also be the betterment of everybody else around you. 
and maybe that can lead to a more harmonious world. Um, and I think we just really need these old people to go away. I'm sorry, I love you all, but like you know, some of the older politicians, you I mean, I'm specifically speaking to Donald Trump, which this is, hap this is being, um, this is going up after the election here in the US, right? Yeah. So I hope I'm speaking from a world where we have no longer, I mean, we'll still have Trump as president because he has until January, but I'm hoping that I am in a different mood when this podcast goes up and the anxiety is gone, maybe, hopefully, fingers crossed. If it's not, well, I'm moving to the UK. It's probably not better than the UK. I don't know where I'm moving. I don't know where I'm going yeah, to. Move to Israel. You yeah, move to Israel, move to Israel. Actually, I think I would probably move to Berlin because even though Angela Merkel is in her like last year or whatever, I trust her. I trust exactly. Angela. And actually, funny, like today, so Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister of New Zealand, has just uh -huh. been given a big turn today. So I love her too. Good. Love her too. I adore her. I just, yeah. I just, yeah, I feel safe. And I just wish she would tease her well. hair more, though. I do wish she would tease her hair more. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's it's a horrible world. And it, the the worst thing is kind of I'm I'm waiting to be disappointed, which is not a nice. Thing. I don't know if it's just this year, but like Brexit, Trump. And then Corona, kind of, I'm, I'm not getting too excited about things, which is kind of sad, but equally I'm a bit more grounded now. And I think, I, no, I agree. I think there is a ground. I mean, I am hopeful. I'm very, very hopeful that we're going in the right direction. But um, I'm also very hopeful for the UK too. I think the UK actually has, I think this, this I think leaving the EU, EU is a bad decision, but I also think that it's like, it may be, it might be, waking everybody up. I don't know. I just hope that like change is coming and that people are getting that sense of sort of like, we're really fucked up right now, but we can correct this. You know what I mean? Like we have the ability to change this if we just wake the fuck up and I feel it's happening. But like you said, I'm in the same boat this year. Corona has made everything made us all realize that like tomorrow isn't guaranteed the outcome of tomorrow isn't guaranteed so you might as well just like be in this moment because it's all we got and i think it's been it's been and this is part of the reason why black lives matter really took um really kind of took flight this year i think because over the last few years and then particularly with corona has only made it worse is how quickly your rights can be eroded and i think yeah younger younger LGBT as if we're elderly but younger LGBT people and actually you know people the same age kind of take a lot of what we have for granted and I think yeah. this year has kind of helped or at least during the Trump era and even though Brexit's not directly not directly um, linked but they are taking away lots of our human mm -hmm. rights that are protected by European law I think a lot of people are waking up and realizing that yeah you really can't take the progress that we've made for granted well, and nothing, I mean, and I think, yes, completely. I think that is 1000% true. And I, and I think it sort of speaks to, I mean, I'm working on this project right now that, um, that, I mean, I, I won't go into the project because it's completely insane, but part of it is about dealing with that time in sort of US history where Bush was announcing this constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage. And I was having this, this text chain yesterday with the producers of this project I'm writing on that that um, how, how triggering that was and how it's so strange to think that that was just 16 years ago and how 
fortunately in our country, things quickly changed for the better. And we did have moments of really, really, really fast progressive change, but also living in this world that we have now with the prospect of even even marriage equality in the U.S. At, at, at in question because of what's happening with the Supreme Court in the U.S. And like, there are so many things that like could go away. And I think, and as I'm, as I was texting with these friends, I, I kept thinking like, here I am a white, I'm a, yes, I'm a white person. I'm a white man in the U.S., which gives me an immense amount of privilege and immense amount of privilege to sort of speak in any way I want, which is, which is really unfortunate. But I, I get that. I'm very socially aware of that. And I think that, my thinking, my sort of just, or even, I mean, yourself too, because you're also a white man. Like the idea of us thinking like just coming to realize these things could go away is a reality that I think black and brown Americans and people across the world have been like, well, yeah, we've always known these things can go away because they keep being taken away from us and things keep changing. And in the U.S. here, we have these, you know, massive legacy changing things like the Civil Rights Act, but then 30, 40 years later, we're still dealing with, police forces, you know, shooting innocent black people. And it's like the reality of things not changing quick enough or things being taken away really quickly is an, is an experience that I openly acknowledge black and brown people have a very different relationship with than me as a white person. And, and, and I think it's really good that white people, and I hope we continue to like realize that, that even us being surprised by things being taken away is a privilege and that, that yeah. maybe we step back and say, okay, well, we're all we're all in this together. So let's change for the better. Thank you. That's a really good way of, of looking at it, actually. Um, for the final question that I asked mm. in each episode, um, now I tried to note down a specific age, but you didn't give one. So I'm going to go to a point in your life. What would you go back and say to the little H Alan Scott um, stood by a lake, seeing that very flamboyant what would you say to Oh my God. Well, I would say to maybe cut back on the carbs early on so you could understand to have how to have a healthy eating life. That would be my first thing, probably, <laughs> to not to not eat so many carbs. Um, although I love myself and body is beautiful. Uh, but um, no, what would I say to him? Honestly, I mean, I would probably say to trust your gut early on a little bit more because I do feel like um, there weren't wasted years. Every year I think is important and I've learned something from it, but um, there was a period in like my twenties to early thirties where I was just going in a direction that I felt I should be going. And even though I was doing things that I enjoyed and everything, I really should have just trusted my gut when I was 18, 19 and did what I wanted to do, which I think would have gotten me to a place that I am right now a lot quicker, um, I think. I don't know, but that's all me as we get older, thinking back and thinking like, oh, I should have done this and I would have gone this way, which who knows if I would have. But that said, I'm real grateful to be where I am now. And I'm very happy about it. So maybe just chill out, kid. Like, keep watching TV and be happy. A 
huge thank you to H. Allen Scott for joining me on this episode. You can find out about H. Allen's work and Sadie Pine's work in the episode notes. And thank you to you for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed this Hanukkah special. And um, please remember to share this podcast with everyone you know. Subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use and leave a review on iTunes. It's really important that we keep sharing these conversations. Thank you to Richard Abrahams for my theme music. And don't forget to follow me at WDYK Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or email me at wdykpod at gmail.com with questions, comments, or to volunteer yourself for an interview. Um, and I look forward to seeing you next week for the last episode of season one of When Did You Know?